This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 20th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have Emily Conover up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Nicholas Carell about the future of robotic materials. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have Emily Conover, Science's News Intern. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. How life got started on Earth and then kept going has vexed scientists for a long time. Even if you have something resembling an early form of life, it's got to have a way to replicate itself, like RNA or DNA. Otherwise, it gets sent back to square one. But since RNA and DNA make proteins, and cells need proteins to copy RNA and DNA, this produces a chicken and egg problem. And protocells also need some kind of membrane to hold themselves together. But how do they make them without enzymes? Now, scientists think they may have solved this dilemma via a pair of simple compounds and reactions. What's their hypothesis, Emily? Well, one idea for how life formed is that RNA came first. So researchers worked backward from RNA to see if very simple materials could combine to produce the molecules. They were able to do so using hydrogen cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, and UV light. And those conditions can also create the starting materials needed for amino acids and lipids. So one set of reactions can explain everything needed for life to come to be. 
And where do the scientists propose that these two compounds came from in the first place, Emily? Well, both hydrogen cyanide and hydrogen sulfide could have existed on early Earth. Hydrogen cyanide is plentiful in comets that rain down on early Earth, and hydrogen sulfide is also thought to have been present at that stage. And early Earth was also bathed in UV radiation, so all the necessary elements were there. Interesting. And how do the scientists propose that the products of reactions between these compounds, amino acids, nucleic acids, and lipids, ended up in the right place at the right time to form life? So these reactions would have taken place in separate pools, and the products would have had to combine later by, for instance, rainwater runoff. It's a really intriguing idea, and we probably won't ever have complete evidence to show whether or not it's really true. Very intriguing nonetheless. Our next story takes us from the origins of life on Earth to the contents of our own genomes. A new study suggests that genetically speaking, we're not quite as human as we might like to think we are. What's this all about, Emily? This new research indicates that we may have over 100 genes that came from bacteria, single-celled organisms, or viruses. So the study provides new evidence that genes have jumped species in our past. So we've known for a long time that this horizontal gene transfer is possible in microbes or plants, but it's controversial whether it might be possible in other more complex species. And to come to this conclusion, scientists scoured genome databases of many different species. What were they looking for? So researchers were looking for genes that were present in animal species and also in microbes, but not in related animals. So they analyzed genome sequences of 40 animal species from fruit flies to zebrafish to humans, and then they searched genome databases to look for matches to all of those genes. They looked for cases where an animal's gene more closely matched a non-animal gene than any gene in another animal. And they found hundreds of genes in animals that seemed to have originated in microorganisms. Surprisingly, they found 145 genes in humans that seem to have made the jump from another species. Wow, that's a lot of genes. Do the researchers have any idea what some of these genes are for and if they're important? Well, these genes seem to play important roles in things like metabolism or the immune system and basic biochemistry, but there's not a lot of specifics on how those genes got there and when they jumped. Interesting. And are there any explanations other than horizontal gene transfer that could account for how some of these genes got into us or other animals? These genes could have been present in a long-ago extinct ancestor, and they simply could have disappeared in other species. So not everyone is sold on the idea that genes may have jumped from bacteria into our genome. In our final story today, could the language you speak shape your perception of the world? Researchers at Lancaster University in the UK think so. They tested German speakers, English speakers, and bilinguals on how they perceive action and found some interesting differences. What were they, Emily? So German and English speakers tended to treat events differently. German grammar isn't very specific about time to the extent that English is. So Germans often will focus on the beginnings and the ends of events, whereas English speakers will focus on the middle, on the action. And the researchers wondered whether this might make German speakers more likely to attach a goal to an action. So they showed video clips of people doing actions like walking or running, in which those people had clear goals. So, for instance, a woman walking into a building, as well as ones with no goals or ones with ambiguous goals, like a woman walking toward a parked car. They asked subjects to decide if an ambiguous video was more similar to the one with a goal or the one without a goal. 
The German speakers matched the ambiguous video with the goal-oriented video more often than the English speakers did. So when they tested bilingual speakers, their behavior matched that of the language that they were tested in. So the researchers decided to test bilinguals because differences in language can often be confused with differences in culture. And testing bilingual subjects is a good way of disentangling these two effects. Okay, and they followed this up with further tests of bilinguals by doing another experiment. What did they find here? So what they did was they repeated this test with bilinguals while blocking one language. And the way that they blocked the language was they required speakers to repeat a sequence of numbers out loud in either English or German. And this blocked that language, meaning that the speaker took on the behavior of the language that they weren't counting in. So what does a study say overall about how bilinguals may see their world compared to everyone else? It implies that bilinguals might be able to switch back and forth from one worldview to another, being influenced by one of their languages at a time. Some researchers argue that this difference isn't likely to play much of a role in in daily life. Why not? Well, in daily life, you're more likely to choose what to pay attention to based on what's going on around you rather than in a sterile lab environment where you don't have much to go on. Right, right. What else is on the site this week, Emily? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about the decline of the Amazon as a sink for carbon. Also, a story about how invasive pythons are reducing marsh rabbit populations in the Florida Everglades. And on Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about frustrated Canadian academics coming up with their own climate policy for the nation. Also, a story about how a lack of data on some Arctic mammals makes conservation efforts difficult. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Suzanne. Emily Conover is Science's News Intern. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, if you're still holding out for your childhood dream of living the Jetsons lifestyle, don't lose hope. You might not have a flying car yet, but flat-screen TVs are a thing, and so is video chatting. And roboticists are hard at work in their not-so-secret laboratories, developing and refining smart, autonomous materials that change in response to their environment. Nicholas Carell discusses the future of robotic materials in this week's science. Robotic materials are materials that embed sensing, computation, and actuation in a way that they can sense their environment, make decisions on how they want to change, and then actuate properties of the materials so they can change their shape or change their appearance in an autonomous way, much like robots do. And I think the real novelty of robotic materials is the combination of sensing, actuation, computation, And then we have communication, if you think about many, many, many little computers being integrated and talking to each other locally. All right. And once you have these four elements in place, then what? So I think the interesting thing about robotic materials is the computing element. That is really what makes it novel and interesting, because once you have that, you can essentially freely program how the material behaves, and you can essentially change the constitutive laws of the material. So, for example, if you think about a spring, which has a simple law of physics, Hooke's law, force is equal to the spring constant times displacement, you could now think about a little computer that changes that spring constant in a completely arbitrary way. And this is a simple example, which is essentially changing the stiffness of a material. But why couldn't you make a material that lets you program its heat capacity or its electrical conductivity? So you only need actuators and sensors that can do these things and then program the computer so that the 
material behaves in the desired way. And in your paper, you focus on four types of robotic materials, and they're all inspired by nature. What are examples of each of these? I think natural systems are essentially robotic materials. All of them are cells that can either sense or compute in a very simple way or actuate some muscle cells. First example is materials that can change their appearance. So in nature, you might have chameleons or cuttlefish, which really change completely the way they look like. And if you could do that, you could make cars that camouflage, but you could also have dresses or fashion items that you can control in their appearance. Another example are materials that can change their shape. So in nature, you have fish like the manta ray or you have birds like the eagle, which can adapt the shape of their wings to respond to different aerodynamic challenges. And of course, that's very interesting to create airplane wings that change their shape or car spoilers that would adapt to different driving speeds. Another example, materials that can self-diagnose. So almost all natural living systems can diagnose and self-heal. But a simpler example or more visual example is maybe a tree, which like the banyan tree, which grows roots out in response to changing load. So when you put different loads on that tree, it will grow roots so that actually over the surface to structurally support itself. And so if you think about it that way, you might be able to create bridges that not only monitor when they are breaking, but also self-repair or structurally improve. And finally, there are materials that can process information. And so one example is the human skin, which has a very, very rich range of sensor input that it can process, ranging from touch to textures. And it is able to do that without bothering your brain and overloading it with all this information, but it is able to root important information over not so important one, like if you touch something hot, you won't be able to tell the texture of the material. These are the four examples that we named in the paper. And I can see why emulating biological systems rather than starting from scratch makes a lot of sense for robotic materials, but reverse engineering millions of years of evolution has got to have its challenges, right? Yes, it's a very big challenge, of course, to understand how natural systems work. This is not really the problem we tackle, though. For us, these biological systems that I mentioned are more remembering us that we can actually consider engineered systems made of homogeneous cells which allow the designer to offload lots of processing and sensing into the material. How we actually implement that is another question, and I think it's not always in our best interest to follow bio-inspiration to the last detail, but maybe we have already engineered systems that are doing a better job. So, for instance, if you want to make an artificial cuttlefish, you could look at the way the chromatophores open and close to release pigment, or you could just choose e-ink, which is now on every Kindle, and build something that integrates sensing underneath and processing to figure out how to change the appearance, ignoring the way the cuttlefish actually does it. Another example where computation is actually offloaded into the material is the cochlea in our ears, where sound is transformed in the frequency domain, essentially doing the computation equivalent of a discrete Fourier transform. And so I could design a material that does that by mimicking the way the cochlea works, which people have actually done, or I could use a simple small computer and implement a fast Fourier transform to do that. Okay, so imagine with a lot of engineering challenges, will some of these robotic materials be too clunky to be functional at first? 
Yeah, so we have built a couple of robotic materials which are very clunky, and that's a big problem because nobody really wants something that is clunky, expensive, and hard to make. But we do believe that there are some applications for robotic materials that already work with current technology and that we can make ourselves. And we also believe that there are actually applications which will most benefit from robotic materials. And these are the ones which will drive the way we manufacture them. For instance, we believe that robotic materials can really revolutionize the way we think about grasping manipulation in robotics or prosthetics, the way we think about structures that self-diagnose or airfoils that change their shape. And these are very important applications that actually justify researching and investigating ways of making those things cheaply and small. And I think these technologies will then eventually percolate into applications which have maybe a lesser immediate benefit and eventually lead to everyday materials that are smart and adapt to their users' needs. Okay, so you mentioned cost, and and so in your lab, do you start with sort of a high-cost, clunky demo project and then work towards something that's more of an everyday robotic material? That's exactly what we do. We have looked into ways where robotic materials can actually solve a problem in a way that couldn't be solved before or couldn't be solved as easily before. And we built four systems um, by hand. One is a skin that recognizes textures, so you can touch it and it would tell you with what you would rub it and where that happened. We made a dress that triangulates the direction of incoming sound. And finally, we made a beam that changes its shape. And I think, although clunky, all of these things are functional and useful, and using conventional technology would require to have some bulky external unit which would control those things centrally. And that would be very hard, in particular, when you consider a lot of sensors that needs to be routed back to that central computer and control information that has to go back in. So these things are very hard to construct that way. And if you offload the computation into the material and have the sensing and the actuation all be co-located, you can actually solve these problems in a much more attractive way. And one of the inventions you mentioned in your paper that could be very useful for me is these smart insoles that could help my tired feet. Tell me about these. There are many everyday materials, I think, that robotic materials will eventually enable, and we are thinking and brainstorming about them for many years, and the insoles are one which is something which would be very simple to build. So the idea is you will have actuators that allow to change the stiffness of the sole. You might have sensors that sense the pressure, and you have little controllers, computers that regulate that, and it might help you to change your stiffness profile when you jog or when you run, And the reason I like this example is because I can see how to make it, but it is very, very unlikely that we will be able to make that cheaply and easily anytime soon. So it really illustrates how much more work we need to do so that these kind of things become ubiquitous. Another example that I really like is a dinner table, which can heat itself and cool itself as a function of the items you place on it. So it might heat your dish, but cool your drink. And this is something that you could easily conceive, and this is something that I do with my students in the first-year engineering projects. You might use a Peltier element, and you might use a sensor and a little computer, and you could do that for $30 a square foot. Yet, imagining a table that has hundreds of computers integrated is kind of hard because we just don't have the manufacturing equipment to mass-produce these kind of things. I think it's not science fiction because we can make materials in our lab that are functional or that are robotic materials. I think what is science fiction is to really get them into everybody's hands and essentially 
have materials like cups, sofas, and tables, which are robotic materials and are multifunctional, if you want, without paying an extra high price for that. Looking back into the past 10 years, I think amazing things have happened. If you just think about the smartphone and how complex it has become, it is probably very likely that we will be able to see materials of that complexity if we can identify applications that really drive them. Now, to pull all this off takes an interdisciplinary team, and you also address the need for education in your paper. Robotics is actually not really a degree program in most universities yet, and it's an interdisciplinary science, and so my students are from computer science, from aerospace, from mechanical engineering, from design. And I think uh, that is how we have been able to investigate these materials. I think the word roboticist captures robotic materials very well because roboticists are used to deal with some mechanism and physics and computation connected by sensing all the time. So I think we have a couple of tools ranging from understanding those systems formally to manufacturing them that allow us to actually look into those. And in order to pull it off, as you say, I think we need to indeed seek out collaboration with physicists and material scientists that are interested in making actuators, sensors, and computation manufacturing smaller and cheaper so that you can actually get real materials that are seamlessly looking like any living system that you know where you need a microscope to actually tell that there are many, 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 many cells at work. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Nicholas. Well, thank you so much, Susanna, for the interview. Nicholas Carell and Andy McAvoy write about the future of robotic materials in this week's science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.